Welcome to the Evoking History Podcast. We are called as a people to give testimony in the sight of the world to our faith that the future shall belong to the free. Since this century's beginning, a time of tempest has seemed to come upon the continents of the earth. Masses of Asia have awakened to strike off shackles of the past. Great nations of Europe have fought their bloodiest wars. Thrones have toppled, and their vast empires have disappeared. New nations have been born. For our own country, it has been a time of recurring trial. We have grown in power and in responsibility. Welcome, everyone, to the Voting History Podcast. With me this week again is Professor of History at Murray State University, Dr. David Pizzo. How are you doing today, David? I'm good. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it is a pleasure. It is a pleasure. I, As I record this, I don't remember exactly how many episodes, but I think this might be the 19th or 20th episode. Oh, wow. Yeah. You were quick. I... With conditions being the way they are, since I can't research, I might as well record podcasts. So yeah, indeed. Yeah, make good use of the time. So yeah. Quarantine life. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, Dr. Pizzo has been kind enough to join us again to continue our conversation about Germany, specifically German imperialism, um, and we're going to be talking about a chapter that he has in a forthcoming book out of Oxford University Press, the Peter Lang imprint. After the Imperialist Imagination, Two Decades of Research on Global Germany and Its Legacies. As some of you who listen are probably aware, this will be the, a second imprint of this book. There was one, I believe it came out in 98, is that correct? Yeah, it was a hardbound in 98 and then a softcover in 99. And so we sort of are roughly 20 years after, Is you know, we'll talk about that in a second, about 20 yeah. years on from when it came out a little bit more. Yes, so this will be a new edition with several new chapters, including one that David has written that we will get into shortly. Um, but first, uh, I think it would be remiss of us, since we've kind of talked about the quarantine, if we didn't talk um, as historians and document the current moment just a little bit. Yeah, sure. as, as we record, it is, is March 24th of 2020. And I can't speak for what is going on at Murray Stater in Kentucky, but I know here in Wisconsin, the, the latest update that I have is that um, the university that I am at, Marquette University, has just announced yesterday that they would be continuing online classes through the end of the semester, so until May 10th. And we have an executive order from the governor about closing down non-essential businesses and to effectively shelter in place starting on Wednesday. Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're closed physically through the summer, so it's good to know. Oh. oh, wow. That's the right so, answer. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. Yeah, completely, 100% agree, which, you know, again, not to be too presentist, um, but given the scuttle that is going on in the current moment about well quarantine is great and all but the economy is going to completely suffer if we don't do something so we just need to ignore this and get back to work and if they die they die pretty chilling pretty chilling 
I mean, it certainly indicates a level of contempt that I would argue most liberal societies with a capital L would not <laughs> argue as part of their ethos. But, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, we sort of are in a global authoritarian moment, in my opinion, not just here. Uh, yeah, it's almost like it's the 1920s all over again. And so yeah, almost like. <laughs> so, so we're getting the magic of the 1918 flu and the 1929 economic implosion simultaneously. Yeah. And, you know, it needs to be pointed out that the 1918 economy was a disaster also. That has mostly been forgotten, that massive post-war deflation that essentially the British ran through. So, Well, uh, I, mean, I think as Americans, we often do overlook the fact that we had a, a cycle of disasters economically from, like, I think the mid-1870s on. I mean, with very brief recoveries, and then we just go back into economic downturns uh, until effectively the second world war brought us out of it and i think that's in some ways and obviously we're getting a little far afield but i mean in many ways i think that's the norm in terms of how capitalist societies had to endure this sort of up and down at least back to the 1840s oh yeah uh, that depression as robert b marx points out the only thing that kept capitalism afloat then was the opium trade was essentially mm -hmm. opium um, as you point out, 1873, there's a complete implosion that also began in the U.S., much like 29 or, or 2008. Um, it's really sort of the post-45 long boom or the long durée. There are different terms for what you want to call it. The sort of Usually it's called the long boom. That's sort of where the tante glorious, the glorious 30 years. I think yeah. in many ways that gave us a false sense of what is normal. Uh, you know, that was the sort of very Keynesian moment where there was all kinds of prime, priming of the pomp. Labor relations had been completely transformed because of fear of fascism and the new communist enemy. So um, I think with hindsight, in some ways, that 30 years was the aberration, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. Sort of steady growth and sort of growing integration. Um, you know, for anybody who's a millennial or, you know, you and I are Gen Xers, uh, this is our, th for you and I, this is our third one of these. Sort yep. of the 87, 2008, this thing now, I mean, it... I mean, you can argue as our fourth, because even though we don't remember it, coming out of the oil shock of the 70s. No, for sure. Um, Hyperinflation and all that. Yeah. We were born at the tail end of that. So, so that's yeah. four in the lifetime of two. I mean, I know we feel crusty and old when we're at shows <laughs> or whatever, but I mean, you know, we're only in our early 40s. Yeah. And this is our fourth one of these. So, exactly. Or you could also throw 2000 in the mix. That's true. You want to pitch the dot-com implosion and Worldcom and all that. So. You know, obviously there was varying levels of severity, but this one now, mm, I mean, if numbers coming out of Europe are any indication, we're looking at, you know, a 1930s level implosion of yeah. employment. Yeah. Deflationary spiral, conceivably, or inflation, maybe both. It depends on what they do. I mean, they may just start print, printing money. I think they're quasi doing that now, but, oh, well, which, you know, Weimar made that work super well. <laughs> yeah. So, it's, it's a good I mean, model. It's not the same well. situation. <laughs> yeah. Um, definitely so. And, you know, everybody always wants us to look back to that post-Second World War period and be like, we need to return to our manufacturing base to that. It's like, well, you can't because so much of the world isn't destroyed and we're the only manufacturer up and running. So yeah, all you need is half the world destroyed. Yeah. All your competitors laid low. And what would today be, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of uh, production spending for the war. We should do that again. Uh, yeah, it's the idea yeah. that we can just replicate that is, of course, ludicrous. I mean, right, it barely exactly. worked then. <laughs> so, without a doubt. Well, enough about that uh, 
that particular doom and gloom moment. Although I do feel that we are on the uh, roller coaster in each notch. It's just towards that impending peak when we're going to free fall, and, and I still don't think we're there yet. No, me either. Not even close. No, it hasn't even really started here. No, not at all. We're about two to three weeks behind Italy, I would guess, just in terms of hospitals being overwhelmed. and. Well, and that's another thing. The rhetoric about the Italian medical community is outside of bounds because I believe that was like the number two ranked medical community in the world before this outbreak, whereas yeah. we're in the 30s. So it's, it's yeah. <sighs> Good times. Yep. Well, the good thing is we're about to talk about Nazism, which is <laughs> yeah, super so it's great. Gonna it's going to get cheery from here on out. And economic growth was strong. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit, I guess, about how this project came together. For sure. So the imperialist imagination, German colonialism and its legacy, this was an edited volume put together by Sarah Friedrichsmeier, Sarah Lennox, and um, Suzanne Zantop. So... Uh, it was this really sort of interesting moment in the late 90s when, you know, post-colonialism, the linguistic turn, post-modernism, post-structuralism, all the posts, that was very much the rage. You know, Orientalism had come to be accepted. Studies of the British and the French Empire, uh, you know, things like Imperial Leather had come out, you know, books that really looked intensely at culture and discourse. And so what they were trying to do was shift that conversation to Germany. And they were looking specifically at mostly the imperial period proper, so, you know, 1870 up until 1918, though the book went a little bit after that. Um, so that book was incredibly significant for my generation. That was sort of the, you know, the, the call put out to take the German Empire seriously and to do different kinds of things with it. Uh, there were some complaints at the time, like, well, we haven't even really had the intense work on the nuts and bolts of what even happened compared to some of the empi other empires. And this mm -hmm. had a lot to do with, uh, you know, the Germans between giving up their empire in 1919 and then the historiographical train wreck created by division, archives in different places, you know, very different trajectories of the German historical profession. There were a bunch of reasons that the empire really wasn't that emphasized. World War II and Nazism, of course, sucked all the air out of the room. Yeah. So in any case, I think this was an important moment where they sort of said no we need to take this seriously and look at it uh you know and not everyone felt the way i think i it may have been last time and i apologize if not where i told you that a professor who won't be named at my alma mater in a seminar said you know i don't understand why anyone cares about the german empire i mean it was only you know 30 or 40 years and i looked at right. him and said man east germany was only around for 40 years and you care about that a lot <laughs> so i mean you know the sort of idea of minimizing it because of duration uh, that, that perspective looks very different when you're actually in Germany, East Africa, or Namibia and talk to people, but we can talk yeah. about that later because I did field work in, in Tanzania in 2005 and was back in 2011. In any case, so this book was an important sort of clarion call for people to do work. And uh, 20 years later, or a little bit less than that, so back in 2015, at the German Studies Association Conference in D.C., those of us, there were several of us who had been part of the Seminar for Advanced European Studies at the Free University in Berlin. This is a dissertation program that uh, essentially the German Studies Association manages funneling people to it. And it's this really great uh, colloquium slash uh, PhD research program. You know, you meet, you go and do your work. And I was uh, I was lucky enough to be there for three semesters. So I got to know some of those people, people like my uh, collaborator, Sarah Pugach. 
and we had uh, essentially a discussion of Germany in the global in 2015, and that was run as a, I think that one was run as a round table. I sometimes get the terminology mixed up, but anyway, essentially a bunch of us sat in a circle. It was really cool. It was sort of intimate. It wasn't that big of a group and talked about how much things had changed in the last 20 years. And so we decided to schedule a follow-up for 2016. Then the GSA was in San Diego. That was a good year. And we had a seminar. This is one of these things that meets every day. And there was a reading list and a bunch of really wonderful, amazing scholars from not just history, which, you know, is our discipline, but uh, German studies, film, um, cultural studies, various things. So, you know, beyond history, political science. And so at the end of that seminar, uh, a lot of us said, wow, this is really amazing. We should really turn this into something. And, you know, maybe we could hook on to the imperialist imagination. Uh, through this original book. And so we talked to Peter Lang, which Sarah had a connection to, and they were extremely excited. We reached out to uh, Sarah Lennox, so, and Nina Berman, who was also involved, so some of the people who were involved with the original project. And we were very happy that they were excited because there was a chance they were just, you know, they could have said, no, we want, we're over that, or we don't want you to touch it. Uh, and so, as I said, they were very supportive. And so we essentially decided to take things that were workshopped in that seminar and turn them into a book sort of based on the idea of after the imperialist imagination. So it's sort of a nod to it and basically trying to pick up where it left off and go through some of the things that have happened in the last 20 years, you know, some of the scholarship that's out there. And we thought it was important that this be a fairly broad, Odd work, so it is mostly history, but there's also some people who do film and literature uh, or, or from German departments. But also, we wanted to make sure it covered the period not just of the empire, but extended forward into. I personally, as we'll talk about, thought it was important for the Third Reich to be included because sometimes mm -hmm. it's sort of left out of these discussions, and we can pick that apart if you want. Uh, and then, of course, there's all this amazing post war stuff. Sarah Pugach herself works on african populations in the ddr mostly as students it's a lot of what she's done ghanaians uh nigerians she's done a lot of work on essentially the african diaspora in particularly east germany so which often people don't even realize existed but was a very real thing yeah. and then adam blackler who now is at the university of wyoming uh sarah recommended we add him because he works on namibia so he was very much in the imperial period so he was sort of before what she and i were going to work on and I'm very glad we did because Adam is a machine in terms of organization and work. I mean, even if he was added last, credit where credit due, he did a ton to really make the structures. And uh, his university was really generous with financial support for us. So we got very lucky in that regard. And so we took all these contributions and assembled them into an edited volume. So we co-wrote the introduction. And then, uh, as I said, Adam, he wrote about the empire and German Southwest Africa, Namibia. Sarah wrote more about uh, Africans, African populations in post-war Germany or the post-war Germanys, and I talked about Nazism as a global phenomenon or something embedded in a global context. Right. And in theory, this book was supposed to be out this year. I assume that will still be true. As you saw, it's already listed on Google Books. Uh, everything's done. The publisher has it. We're waiting on a second read. Uh, hopefully coronavirus won't completely shut this process down, but it is what it is. But in theory, it should be coming out this year, maybe ne early next year at the latest. So that's sort of some background on where it came from and how we got here, and if that clarifies. It does. Thank you. So there's a lot there in a, a lot of different directions that we could kind of go in off of that. Um, one thing that I want to to 
I guess, ask about, especially since it's bringing in all these other disciplines into the book, is I think for some people, the idea of empire or and anti-colonialism especially has been reduced to a theoretical model. And so sure. it is, has become almost high theory in a way, whether it's Fanon or Said mm -hmm. uh, or I any of these brilliant writers who were writing about the experience and the times. Did you see a lot of that from these other disciplines? And I don't know how involved you were in them, but even on the round table when you were sitting there, how did that that use of the theory interact with the history when sure. it was taken out of the context and just used as a theory? Yeah, for sure. Sort of removed from the Anglo or the Franco context. And you know, right. How much does say you tell us about German relations with Persia? So, uh, you know, I I don't think it's a coincidence that almost all the scholars in the room, most of us anyway, were a similar generation. They were all sort of roughly our age, I guess. So sort of Gen Xers, maybe. I think we're precisely the generation that was the first one trained by mm -hmm. people who had had to engage with that. But I think in some ways not to toot our own horn, I don't think we felt quite as bound by it. I mean, I remember in grad school or when I first arrived at Murray State, my colleagues really sort of freaking out about high theory and post-structuralism and these sort of cultural turn theories of imperialism. And I feel like the age group that, you know, Sarah and I and, and Adam were all sort of roughly in the sort of, you know, 30s, 40s, I think some of us are in our early 50s, uh, I think both honor that theory and view it as useful, but I don't think feel as maybe constrained by it or maybe part of the issue is we don't feel the need to sort of prove its validity. So in many ways, I guess we're standing on the shoulders of giants. But I, I think this generation has the advantage of engaging with those ideas, but not being sort of paralyzed by them. And I don't want to overstate what was going on in that earlier scholarship. So I think all of us were using it to a certain degree. I mean, certainly in literature and film, I think it's still pretty dominant, uh, depending on, you know, what, what your approach is. Um, but, you know, I think all of these entries to some degree engage with theory. But I have to say, you know, certainly for the historians, and that's the one I know the best, I think that, you know, I absolutely agree that in the late 90s, in many ways, focus on the German Empire was largely theoretical or maybe largely focused on the metropolis. But I think in the 20 years, one of the things you've seen, and I hope this volume shows that, is there's been a shift to real scholarship based on things on the ground. You know, Adam right. did field work in Namibia. You know, he went to Tanzania a couple of times. Sarah's been all over, worked in all sorts of archives or had people that have helped her, you know, in Kenya. You know, she's been to Ghana. So... And that's true of all these other people, of course, uh, you know, they've either been to Afghanistan or Persia or one is based in Hawaii, one of the ones writing about Nazism, which is super interesting. Amazing. So I think there's been a lot of real some of the nuts and bolts work on what actually happened and what's going on on the ground that uh, maybe some people felt was a little bit missing in the late 90s. We just didn't have much of it yet. I mean, when I started learning about the German Empire and I made that my focus, there were not a lot of people doing it. I mean, there were some, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was at conferences or whatever, there might be one panel of the GSA. And, you know, by 2019, that's the last GSA I went to, that one was in Pittsburgh, uh, there were literally dozens of sort of, not just about the empire, but sort of Germany and the global, you know. And, and I think part of this moment came not just because of a change within the field by itself. I think part of this came with the shift to transnationalism. You know, it's like the shift from production to consumer studies. Some of the yeah. consumption wasn't going on before. It's just now there's been sort of a shift of focus. And so I think all of us, uh, you know, who prior to coronavirus anyway, 
I guess, well, I was going to say live very transnational lives. I guess coronavirus is the most transnational thing possible. But, uh, you know, I think all of us maybe take for granted that whether it's 2020 or 1920 or 1820, there's all these global interconnections and things that, you know, sometimes are happening within the context of the nation state, sometimes beyond it, sometimes they're non-state actors, things that cross borders. Uh, there's all kinds of wonderful literature, the one I probably know best about, for example, the connections between fascist Germany and Japan or German fascism and other sort of fellow travelers that really looks at fascism as a transnational phenomenon, not just as, I mean, it certainly was hyper-nationalistic, but it was more than that. So, uh, yeah, I think there's been a general shift into sort of transnationalism that some people feel like is a buzzword, and maybe we can pick that apart if you want, but uh, that's probably a longer answer than you wanted, but... No, not at all. I mean, since you brought it up, yeah, let's pick that apart just a little bit. I mean, because I do think that that's important, and I do think that that's kind of the, the as with any direction in scholarship or change of direction, there's always pushback. And so just, I think picking this apart will help people who are not as familiar with it, because I do think that you're right. I, I, and I think that the field has moved vastly, and I wasn't there doing this then, because I didn't start going back to university until the late aughts. But just in my own training, I, I've seen the incorporation of these, even Portuguese or Italian or the German, because of my association with you, these strands of empire brought into the, the larger picture of what it, colonialism and imperialism is. But I think for most people, they still have an idea, especially in the U.S., that it's either India or Ireland, and it's almost distinctly British. Yeah, so sure. I think I think that kind of drilling down on this will really help to expand that picture. You know, one issue, of course, is language. I mean, for a lot of Americans, you know, even those of us who are trained and, you know, we're capable of reading a couple languages, it's so much easier to read scholarship in English. The British Empire controlled the force of the world and generated an enormous amount of literature. So that Anglo-centric focus, uh, I think you see in a lot of fields, I could tell you the same thing about something else I do a lot with World War One. I. I mean, we very much have an Anglo-centric view of that war, sort of yeah. the Western Front and sources written in English, poetry written in English. I mean, in that case, we often are barely in America even cognizant of what the French are doing, despite them being on the Western <laughs> Front and holding 80% of the front. Yeah. Likewise, in terms of empire, yeah, when I used to say I studied the German Empire, People here would say, oh, you mean Rommel, if they knew what I was talking about at all. I want to point out I got that reaction in Germany also to a certain degree, but they were at least vaguely aware. Yeah, most Americans know very little about this. Interestingly, my parents, I think, had a more of awareness of this because of headlines coming out of the Belgian Congo or the rolling festering disaster of the frontline state wars with Mozambique and Angola and South Africa. Uh, you know, just listen to We Didn't Start the Fire. I mean, there's been a shout yeah. out there about the Belgian yeah. Congo. So I think there was some awareness that's in, it sort of fell off. I mean, the Italian Empire, or even more so, I think most people, it's just vanished down the memory hole. So I think the globalization in the 90s and the, you know, very real looming, you know, not to use a lot of buzzwords, but globalized transnational reality of multinational capital cultural flows, capital flows. I mean, that whole sort of world described by, you know, Negri's empire, Negri and Hart, you know, the sort of borderless, almost global imperial world. I think that really pushed a lot of people to look back 
both at the world in sort of a more global way and maybe in a more imperial way, but also anybody doing Italian literature, Italian history or German or Portuguese or Belgian. There was, uh, I think, a real incentive to try and shift the lens and look at their imperial past as this, you know, previous moment of globalization that for better or for worse essentially built the world order that I would argue to this day we still live in. Uh, you know, it was, of course, very much affected by the mid-20th century. But in terms of cores and peripheries and, you know, power and who makes primary commodities and who makes things, you know, there's been, of course, a shift in terms of Asia coming online. But in some ways, the world now doesn't actually look that different, I would argue, as much as maybe it should from 1920. Oh, definitely so. I mean, and I would definitely agree with that. I, you know, that gets into that whole argument of, after the world wars, you go from a multipolar imperial center to kind of a bipolar imperial center in the, in the superpowers and and these arguments. And I think Odd Westad makes this argument that, that really that is an imperial system that the Americans and the Soviets go into. The only thing differentiating it from the old European colonialism is that it had the stated goal of uplift and it wasn't as exploitative. Now, that's a pretty low bar as exploitative, For sure. I would argue, and that, you know, the, the uplift argument, if you look back at, and I'm sure Ott is aware of this, um, if you, but if you look back at the, the reasoning behind a lot of these colonial movements, there was that language in there as well. Certainly as of the post-war. I mean, there's some of it in the 30s, but really in the 50s. Fred Cooper talks a lot about this, or, you know, Richard Reed. There's a lot of scholars who deal with this. This shift to development and development discourse, and that's a whole... You and I could talk about that all day, just that yeah. notion of upliftment. But, you know, it's really a sort of late imperial thing. Uh, and though for the Soviets, credit or credit to do, it was sort of with their thing from the beginning. And I am right. writing on the last thought, that book's right over there on my shelf. You know, his <laughs> argument of the empire of justice and the empire of liberty, and that really interesting chapter about Mongolia. You know, he points out the Soviets were already sort of playing this game of development and modernization assistance already back in the 20s, and certainly in the post-war era. Uh, you know, that is, essentially you have a bipolar imperial order. Uh, I agree that, Maybe it's slightly less exploitative. I also think, you know, drawing on people like Ellen Meiskens Wood and other people who talk about the history of global capitalism and the nation state, that that shift to the nation state proxy or vassal model, depending on how unflattering you want to describe it, I think yeah. that did matter. So this idea of an empire of nation states linked through military bases, uh, cultural arrangements, uh, no, exchanges, there are a million that. ways, yeah, yeah, you know, development assistance, there are a million ways that these nation states were linked into one of the two superpowers and to a certain degree to the third one when China went its own way. But, uh, you know, that, that had a, a different mode of operating. In some ways, it created more buffers between quote unquote exploited people and the metropolis. You could maybe make a crude argument that in an odd way, it was almost like a version of indirect rule where the point of articulation was not a chief or a resident looking at a mirror, but, uh, you know, the American ambassador in Cairo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. linking with the nation state as the unit. So I think that changed matter, but it was, a, it was, to me anyway, clearly an imperial order that, you know, then becomes a unipolar imperial order for a bit. Yep. So speaking of that moment of globalization and transnationalism, and now you and I are living through the fragmentation of that. In some ways, I would argue uh, you're, we're living through a return to the norm in terms of multipolarity 
China being at least regional hegemon, if not global, though it seems to be on its way to being that. Um, you know, I don't think we're past the imperial moment by any means. I mean, there's been some sort of withdrawal from some aspects of this relationship, by particularly the United States, but one that may be temporary. I mean, things, uh, the next president, I don't know whether that'll be in 20 or 24, whoever he or she is, may really try to sort of double down on rebuilding NATO and sort of putting some of these the post-war Humpty Dumpty back together again. I mean, that may not be possible, but, you know, we clearly live now in a kind of a regional hegemonic order that, you know, as I noted, and I'm not even remotely the first scholar to say this, that more closely resembles 1914, maybe. Yeah. 1954. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that. Um, let's kind of scale it back a little bit. Now, I, do, I do think that this is a very interesting conversation, and we could go on and on, as you said, about this. We could. Um, but let's let's go back to talking about your chapter and yeah, please. And, because honestly, I do think that you're right that like it, all of Italy falls down the memory hole. Just this entire Nazism as a global and, and Nazi Germany in the global context is lost. For sure, and I am sharing that chapter with you right now. Oh. Well, thank you. So on Gmail. So boom. So you can look at it at some point. I should have done that in advance, but anyway. So you can look at it after we have this conversation. Yeah, I think to double down or to reinforce what you said, a lot of the global Germany or Germany is plural stuff, either focused on the imperial period, and that's where I started. You know, I started working on Southwest Africa and then I moved to German East Africa. That's what my first book was about. It's about the German Empire, imperial warfare, and extreme violence in the 1890s, basically, in what's now Tanzania, in the Southern Highlands. Or they focused on the post-war era. So, you know, all the ways that East Germany was involved in the Cold War, the West German cultural or education exchanges, West Germany and the EU, the transatlantic relationship, the Soviet-East German relationship, and on and on. So the period between that, Weimar and Nazi Germany, sort of, I don't want to say fell down the memory hole, but I think the issue is, one, it's a relatively brief period, but I mean, to really call it what it is, in my opinion, you know, Nazism is such a moral and intellectual just toxic waste dump that yeah. it really made it very difficult to talk about, you know, certainly German history as a whole, but that period in a way that didn't seem to maybe minimize it or relativize it or compare it. And there was definitely some of that going on. There's this famous moment that some of your listeners will no doubt know about the Historikerstreit. There's this really ugly argument in the 80s about fascism and its contemporaries. You know, a guy named Ernst Nolte essentially said, well, Hitler learned from Lenin. Maybe Nazism isn't that much worse than the Soviets. And other people really pushed back and said, no, how can you say this? That actually was the moment where the genocide, or so-called genocide, as people on the political right would probably argue, that genocide in Southwest Africa of the Herero and the Nama, that's when that entered the conversation. Mm -hmm. So there was, you know, and you could see the same thing in genocide studies, the understandable reticence to compare the Holocaust to something else out of a fear you might minimize it or, yeah. you know, downplay it. I mean, I think genocide studies went through that evolution as well, where finally they said, well, look, yes, there are a million ways maybe that's a talk for another time. If you want to talk to me again, I also teach all that genocide stuff. You know, there was this moment where scholars said, we can both acknowledge all the ways this is unique and incredibly heinous, but understand that it did not just happen in a vacuum. It was influenced by things that had come before it and, of course, influenced things that came after it. And we would never view that as controversial with 
mean, pick something else, you know, the Marshall Plan or, you know, any right. anything else. But for Nazism, it's just so hard. Uh, for Germans and somebody's most of all, I mean, German scholarship uh, is amazing about this period. And obviously they've done there's so much work has happened. But I think it's hard for them sometimes to talk about their own society without having to, you know, they have to expend an enormous amount of energy and time and words dealing with this idea of the Sonderweg, the special path and mm. Nazism. And I, I think all that's important, I think, and we can get into this, depending on how much we get into the weeds. I think there are a lot of ways the German Empire in the 1940s, so that Nazi iteration, was unique and uniquely destructive and horrifyingly violent. But... You know, I, and I'm not the only one, a lot of what I do in this chapter is talk about, essentially, it's sort of, in many ways, a historiographical chapter, talking about all the people who have entered this conversation and pointed out, look, there are a hundred ways in which Nazism was looking to its contemporaries, and I can give you lots of examples of that, a lot of ways in which it was sort of inspired by previous imperial projects, and that's not the same thing as causation, but they were clearly aware. The language they used was very much couched in imperial terms, sometimes drawing from their own imperial experience, sometimes drawing from that of the British or particularly the Americans. There's a huge American piece to this, which yeah. uh, I think that's another thing that's hard for Americans. I think staring at the Nazi empire, you know, even using its own words, really is not a very flattering mirror in some ways. And I think we do need to talk about that. I mean, don't take my word for it. You need only pick up Hitler's unpublished second book. It's published now. Uh, he wrote this after Mein Kampf, and essentially his handlers decided he didn't really need this anymore. He was so big in politics, it was better to leave it aside. I think they were worried about some of what he said in there about the U.S., but that, you know, that book is absolutely dripping with obsession with and focus on the United States. Uh, you can read the recent biography by Sims. It's just called Hitler. He really, I think, leans into this all the ways that America, at least as much as the Soviet Union, was this dominant thing in Nazi thinking. And again, this is not me saying that the extermination of the Yana in California or Apache being enduring scorched earth somehow caused the Holocaust. I'm not saying that, obviously. But the Nazis were clearly, Hitler most of all, familiar with the American model of continental, transcontinental empire and essentially displacement of indigenous populations. So uh, for a lot of reasons, I think just the phenomenon of Nazism just sort of sucked the air out of the room and it made it difficult or too awkward or almost painful, whether you were German or American or whoever, to really do this in the way that you might do something else. Yeah, I mean, and that, that goes to like what Topper talking about it as a a moment of trauma so vast that it kind of pulls everything else into it and kind of traps scholarship in reference to it. Yeah, it's sort of a singularity, if you will, yeah. from mm -hmm. physics or astronomy that just sucks all the light out of the room. And I understand that, but I think in many ways this is one of the most in periods of German history to embed in a global context. And I think it's important to... You know, my, my goal here is not to flog the Americans or the British or the South Africans, for that matter. But the point is, you know, I, I think the Nazis in many, ways were, in many ways were more aware of how global what they're doing was and how much it had antecedents and precedents than people looking at it later did. Yeah. Uh, I think that also goes for some of the people that endured it. I mean, as I mentioned in this chapter, there's a moment where Mark Bloch, you know, this famous historian who, who was one of the co-creators of the Anal School, 
you know, he's drafted again. So this is his second go at war. And after he's captured, there's this moment where he's musing, you know, I wonder if this is what it felt like to be essentially the Algerians. Like this moment of being completely overrun by this, you know, racialized empire that now controls the whole continent. Uh, you know, Fanot and Césaire, you know, you mentioned Fanot earlier, mm-hmm. you know, they also in the immediate post-war era argued, look, this is the chickens coming home to roost. You know, right. this Nazism is in many ways colonialism boomeranging back to the metropolis, you know, this idea of blowback. And you can argue maybe that's a bit overly crude. It's more complicated than that. But, you know, I think there were certain truths that people who were living in the immediate aftermath of Nazism grabbed that then sort of vanished as treatments of Nazism became sort of uh, almost put in a mausoleum, sort of museumified or, you know, sort of fossilized and coalesced around things that, to be honest, as an American, essentially make us feel good. I mean, I think that's why Americans, to a certain degree, love studying yeah. Nazism is is the most dark foil you could possibly imagine. I mean, you've played Wolfenstein. You know, that's the thing yeah. in movies. You're always allowed to kill Nazis. That's the thing. Yeah. And that war had so much moral clarity, so people say. Uh, compared to almost any of the wars that came after it in the rest of the 20th century. So I understand this obsession with it, but I don't think that, you know, the, you know, Americans are obsessed with Nazism, but I think they see it as an aberration that the American exception destroyed, you know, and overcame with maybe the assist given to the Soviets and the British. So usually not even the Soviets, just the British. Yeah, no, that's usually forgotten. Yeah. the, the ones who did the most of the dying and fighting. Yeah, they sure uh, did. Caused most of the casualties. But, you know, yeah. as Sims points out, be that as it may, in terms of, you know, the thing Hitler feared most was the Soviets and the Bolshevization, as he referred to it, of the earth. But the mm-hmm. thing he most wanted to emulate was the United States. I mean, that was his vision, was a continental empire that would be blockade-proof. You know, he, like every other German, had been traumatized by the events of the second half of the First World War, when famine had not only loomed, it had raised in German communities, even at the front they were starving to death. One of the things that slows down the spring offensive of 1918 is Germans pause to gorge themselves on American provisions that are in French or British trenches. So that, you know, looming memory of hunger and famine combined with, you know, these older obsessions with race and space. Uh, Hitler, and he was not alone, his favorite books were the Karl May books about the American West. Uh, that's a whole other thing we could go into, just Karl May. It's such a fascinating story. This was a German author of the 19th, early 20th century who was obsessed with America and wrote all these books about cowboys and Indians, had never set foot in America. They're really sort of romantic and sort of sappy and kind of corny. Uh, he, as an aside, eventually came to America in the early 20th century and was so horrified that he went back and wrote a very different kind of book, but publishers wouldn't publish it. Hmm. So Karl May actually has this moment where he realizes, oh, my God, you know, the West is not a John Wayne movie. It's, you know, Deadwood or one of the probably more recent portrayals of the West. Yeah. So, you know, between this obsession with making Germany a a global contender, this obsession with geopolitics, and then these notions about race and space and turning Ukraine into our California or our India, there were various that people like Goering or Hitler sort of tossed out. Uh, you know, Hitler allegedly famously said at one point, we eat wheat from Canada. We don't think about the despoiled Indians. And I could give you many, many quotes like this. Many of them are in my chapter. Uh, these just sort of, they seem like off the cuff remarks, but one, they're almost always in private. They're not for public consumption. And two, I think they indicate a really deep commitment to a worldview of, you know, the world is one of competing racialized empires and America was basically the most successful one. Yeah, uh, you, you know, it's very interesting that you bring that up, especially about 
Carl Mike going to America and then writing a very different book, because that immediately made me think of Saeed Khatoub and the way that after he comes to America and sees the realities of America, goes back and writes very vitriolic accounts that kind of become the underpinning of, you know, various Islamist movements in the years afterward. Yeah, he was not pleased with where he was in Greenlee, Colorado. But the amount of time Eric had spent on their lawns and he went to a school dance and was horrified. And yeah, no, yeah. He, he definitely has a whole turnaround and his whole notion of Jahaliya, benighted ignorance that really yep. is informed by that time he spent here. And he goes back to Egypt to get tortured. Yeah. Uh, oh, in Nasser's prisons. Anyway, yes, that was a transformative thing. Hitler never made it to America. I have no idea what that would have done for him if he had. You know, I'm sure there's a parallel dimension where. You know, he emigrated in 1912 and became, <laughs> you know, a deadbeat painting postcards in St. Louis. I'd mm-hmm. probably like to live in that world rather than this one. But Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and I, like you said, depending on when he came over, like I said, I think that there's a time he would have just, especially in the early 30s with the, the, the resurgence of the economy that he would have been heralded, much like Mussolini was. So, well, I was about to say, do you want to speak to a little bit too, you know, and you talk about the obsession with the American West and how that played into such uh, a vast part of the, the Nazi or at least Hitler's imagination? Yeah, for sure. So I am in no way the first one to talk about this, you know, in the article. Well, I really lean on all kinds of people, whether it's, you know, James Whitman or the stuff on cool stuff about eugenics or, you know, Edwin Black gets into some of that too. So... You know, there were various ways that the Germans and the Nazis in particular were sort of obsessed with or thinking about the American Empire. And that was sort of twofold. You know, there was their view of the East, quote unquote. So this would be the Black Earth region of the Soviet Union, you know, the Baltic, Poland, uh, the area that Timothy Snyder calls the Bloodlands. So that area, they viewed it as a place like the American West where the Germans could you know, they were a folk ohne Raum, a people without space. This is where they could get their living space, Lebensraum, their their proper habitat, and fulfill their biological destiny. You know, they had a very, you know, Kiernan talks a lot in Blood and Soil about the obsession with agriculture and cultivation. That was sort of a general European obsession, but they'd picked up you know, this notion that the Slavs were not using the land properly, and that if the Germans took over Ukraine, it would turn into a Garden of Eden under their tutelage. Uh, so they definitely had the sort of, I mean, essentially a version of Manifest Destiny in mind. So they were also very fascinated by the American South and James Whitman's Hitler's American Model, uh, the United States, the making of Nazi race law. I think that came out in 2017. So it was a couple of years ago. Talks a lot about the fact-finding mission that the Germans, or missions, plural, that the Germans send out to the American West, to the American South, uh, you know, they go to South Africa. So they're both, you know, reading material, but literally sending people to take a look at the Jim Crow, hyper-segregated 1930s America. And it's very clear that Nazi lawyers, who are the ones who created most of this in places like the Interior Ministry, or there was a race office uh, under that, under a guy named Gross, really were absolutely obsessed with American race law in in drafting things like the Nuremberg Laws. Now, again, I'm not arguing that Mississippi caused the Nuremberg Laws. That obviously is correlation is not causation. I'm sure the Nazis would have figured out a different way to be racist if they'd not had that model. You know, they're also looking at Algeria and segregation era South Africa. But America clearly loomed very large 
in terms of both its experience in the West, it quotes, and then its experience of, you know, having a population that lived among it that was legally inferior and essentially controlled economically, socially, culturally. So, yeah, the Germans thought America was the cat's pajamas, you know, eugenics legislation. Mm-hmm. So America was one of the early ones out of the gates, along with the UK and to a certain degree Scandinavia. I think Japan was in this mix in terms of early eugenics legislation. And again, both cool and black talk about this. And, you know, Weimar doctors felt that their mamby-pamby, overly liberal, quasi-communist state was not doing enough to protect the body politique, to prevent people, the wrong people from having too many children and the right people from not having enough. And, you know, their obsession with American eugenic law is part of what drives their almost immediate pivot to and commitment to eugenic legislation in Nazi Germany. I mean, already in July, they're passing laws in terms of sterilization. And when that happens, there are American observers in Congress and other places who openly complain that America was, you know, at the forefront in the world in terms of eugenics and eugenic legislation and controlling undesirables and that we'd fallen behind. Like we, you know, the Germans essentially jumped ahead of us which is sort of stunning to read. So Americans themselves were aware uh, that there was this sort of international, transnational dialogue across the Atlantic. And we, you know, people know about Atlanticism and transatlantic cultural phenomena, that there's a million ways that comes up in scholarship. But we don't usually think about the history of international racism and race law in that way. Yeah. But, you know, the Germans in the Interior Ministry and the SS absolutely thought in those terms. And again, I'm not saying that the odiousness of the Jim Crow South caused Nazism. That would that's, would be a crude sort of mechanistic view, but you know, it's they're not they're, they're extremely pleased at what they see. Let's put it that way. Sure. And it's and, plenty worth emulation. And are, are you know there are actually moments where they even say that America is almost too harsh, if you can believe that. And obviously, we're comparing rotten apples and rotten oranges. But right. you know, the one drop rule actually horrifies some of these German intellectuals, as opposed to the you know, they had this whole notion of Michelin, which is not a flattering word, mixlets, gross, this idea of quarter Jewish versus half versus three quarters, and was, all, all the stuff that went into the Nuremberg Laws, which your viewers can look up. Mm-hmm. Uh, they thought that American race law, which focused on this idea of literally any black blood at all, essentially made you black. And that goes back to, there's a whole literature about this, the creation of race and racism in colonial Virginia in the 17th century, they thought the war and drop rule was overly harsh, which is saying something. And again, I'm not, I'm, there's not a one, I'm not positing equivalence, but oh my God. I mean, oh, no. when the Nazis denounce you for being overly harsh and excessively racist, that's, yeah, that's something. Well, and, you know, to, to, to be completely fair to kind of this Germanic interaction with the Jim Crow South had gone on before the, the rise of the Nazi empire. Oh, for uh, sure. So there were antecedents that are, you know, ramped up through the Nazi lens. But uh, as you are, of course, aware, and this talked about in Andrew Zimmerman's Alabama and Africa, they had studied this since the the beginning of the the 20th century. Yeah, they were quite obsessed with the American model of getting people of color to work for almost no money. (laughs) That was the thing they were trying to figure out. How do you handle a post-slavery, and I'm putting post-slavery in huge air quotes, post-slavery societies in that transition to wage labor. Uh, And one of the things I want to, maybe moving on back a hair, you know, when I started doing this, you know, I too was kind of looking at a sort of lineage of depravity argument a little bit. You know, when I first read up the Herrero, I said, oh my God, you know, here's the Germans doing this again. 
and you read about the biographies of Eugen Fischer, this was the eugenicist who helped defy Nazi racism, but earlier had done his field work on prisoners of war and concentration camps in German Southwest Africa, or you find out Goering's dad was the first governor. Yeah. There's all these things that there is sort of a lineage from the earlier German empire into Nazism. If you look at the Stroop report, this is the this grisly action report written by the commander who destroyed the Warsaw Ghetto in 43. There's a photograph in the middle of it that my advisor, Christopher Browning, found and showed me. He said, look here, it says, look, our Ascari. Mm. So literally the word yes. for, yeah, Michelle Moyd has written a ton about this, about, you know, these were these uh, soldiers in German East Africa. And so I, to some degree, started looking at this kind of in terms of the Zonderweg a little bit, like, oh, what's what, what's wrong with the Germans? But the more I learned about any of these cases, and the more I learned about empire more broadly, the more it really dawned on me is that, yes, Nazism, of course, is drawing on its own previous colonial experience, not just in Africa, but in Poland, lest we forget. I think in many ways they go to Africa seeing Poland, and they go to Poland seeing Africa. There's all kinds of flow back and forth. Thaddeus Sonseri's scholarship about German East Africa makes clear all the interesting things they try to export from the Prussian East to, to try and sort of make East Africa manageable. And then when they're in Poland, there's all kinds of stuff about them being either Indians or Africans. So, you know, there is that lineage and that connection, but I think in many ways the Nazis were drawing from a much wider, polluted well. And I'm, again, not the first one to say this. I would say Sven Linkvist or uh, Enzo Trevesto, I think is his name, or Hannah Arendt, I mean, to a certain degree. Because yeah. Hannah Arendt did not argue, you know, it was back in the 50s, that Nazism came from the Herero Genesis, or, you know, there's this sort of direct line in terms of the Germans. She argued for a sort of Western notion of power race space and violence that they were drawing on i think the problem with nazism is precisely how similar it is to a lot of what was accepted in a lot of the west so um chaputeau's book uh on nazi law that came out not that long ago uh law of blood i believe what it's called that book is devastating i mean he argues one of the reasons Nazism resonated was precisely because these were pan-European Western notions of racial superiority yeah. and the inevitability of the dying out of the lesser races and the importance of biology as a metaphor and a model that explained all human history. This this was stuff that was pan-European or pan-Western. So oh, yeah. oh, I really yeah. sort of eased off the – I mean, yes, again, there is obviously a lineage of depravity, if you will, in terms of the Germans, but I could tell you that same story to a certain degree about the Belgians. And I know I keep saying this, I'm not minimizing what the Nazis did, dear God. I mean, the scale of what they did, you know, not to make this a numbers game. I mean, it's just so far beyond what at least any individual case in the American West or South Africa looked like. But, uh, you know, they're drawing from the same poisoned well, if you will, as all the other empires are. Yeah, and to, to me, and again, part of this goes to my training, which was is from you, is to, to view this as it's almost the marriage to Fordism, so the industrial line nature, which I guess you could argue is in the Cong uh, Belgian Congo as well. But, you know, that is one of the things that sets it apart from all the other atrocities besides the, the scale, because you're right, you can look at, at any imperial project and see atrocities that are similar in nature and really kind of uh, have the same justification, uh, you know, the settler colonialism you know, aspect that if we are going to take this land and make it ours, which it rightfully should be, quote unquote, 
then we have to do something with the people who are there. And oftentimes that is extinction, unfortunately. Yeah, for sure. You just mentioned the this idea of industrialization or what made Nazi genocide exceptional. Sorry, I was trying to multitask. I was looking at something else at the same time, The my actual draft. So, you know, I think because one of the questions that came up in the readers is, so what is distinct? If you're saying there's all these overlaps, what does make the Nazi experience exceptional? You know, I think it's partially a question of scale. I think it's timing. I think that matters. Uh, and, you know, content, the context is so different because the Germans are not moving into, you know, rural Australia or the California mountains in the 1840s. Uh, this is not me making an argument about anyone's inherent worth, far from it. But, you know, these were societies that were not nearly as, well-armed or in a position to resist in the way that God knows the Soviet Union was. I mean, the Soviet Union was a very different animal to bring down than grinding down the Apache. Um, and, you know, it needs to be said that that tragedy was no, I mean, the Yana literally are all gone in California. So right. to me on a certain level, that tragedy is in some ways no smaller, but the, the context they were moving into created a much more sort of violent reality than most of what you see in the imperial world. You know, the way my advisor talked about this was, you know, it's one of the problems of sometimes earlier genocide scholarship, or at least popular understanding of that scholarship was, you know, genocide's sort of a light switch. It's, you know, binary, it's zero or one. It either is or it isn't. And he says, well, that's not really what is going on here. This is, he argued there was sort of a spectrum mm -hmm. of, you could sort of look at continuums, so to speak. So, you know, what sort of geographic scope were they looking at? Was this a local thing or something they viewed for the whole world? Uh, in terms of how many people they thought needed to be eliminated, were they talking about some, like the decapitation strike in Burundi in 72, which also is awful, or are we talking about all, literally every single one of these people? And then in terms of the method, are we talking about, you know, and I have mixed feelings about this, but are we, you know, beating them to death or hacking them up, or are we murdering them in factories, essentially, that... Yeah the input is humans and the output is ash the thing is nazism on every one of those continuisms has turned up to a continuums has turned up to 11. so i think it's an extremity in all of these ways that i think really makes it justifiably large in our consciousness but i don't think that means you can't compare it to these other things i think it just means you have to recognize it for what it is and uh you know sort of deal with it uh i the other thing i would say is even our picture of industrial murder, which absolutely, of course, that is one of the things that really stands out in the German case, with the exception of maybe the Soviet Union at times. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some other cases where this happened, but really that sort of industrial mass murder was something new and really to some degree hasn't been replicated since. But the first phase of the Holocaust was very different than that in terms of putting people in, in what they literally called reservations or the first ghettos. I mean, half a million people died before, just in the ghettos of things like typhus. And then, you know, as you need only read Dubois' The Holocaust by Bullets, yeah. 1.5 million, some huge number of people were just murdered in batches in the woods and dumped in mass graves. And that phase of the Holocaust is much less well-known in America. Our awareness really focuses on what I would call late Auschwitz, you know, the Mm -hmm. 1944 summer deportations of the Hungarian Jews where the ramp goes straight up to the crematoria at Beer Canal. Uh, that absolutely happened, but well over a million people were murdered in ways that were really not that different than the mass murder you might have seen in an imperial context. And interestingly, in the scholarship on rumor and public awareness, you know, what did the Germans know and when did they know it? You know, the Germans were much more aware of the mass shootings than they actually were of the gas chambers. 
those were incredibly well-known and quite public uh, and sort of played a role in their interpretation of what happened later in the war. I mean, Fritcher, Peter Fritcher talks about this. The, you know, they sort of interpret the bombing to some degree as punishment for the mass shootings in the East, which is a complete misreading of what's happening on so many levels and, and indicates to a certain degree that they had maybe internalized a lot of the regime's logic about the necessity of the war to stop this sort of Jewish global conspiracy, but it does indicate they were quite aware of that phase of the Holocaust. So uh, I'm not trying to take anything away from the industrialness of it, but it is a bit more complicated no. than that. And a lot of what went on in terms of mass murder and murder in 41 or 42 was not that different than the sort of administrative massacres Hannah Arendt describes happening in India in the 1920s. That's her term for this, this murder. And that's the British yeah. in peacetime, by the way. Yeah, well... Well, you know, that's that kind of gets into the Mau Mau and the East concentration camps in the, sure does. In the 50s and everything. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, I, I do think that we have a conception of it as flipping the switch, especially in the, in the case of the Holocaust. Um, but as you've talked about here, it, it is that multi-step process. It's because it's not even that they even start off with the shooting mass peoples in the in the woods. Uh, you know, as we've talked about in your your classes in the past, the the initial the um, sterilization projects and then the gas vans that are driving around and all these other the wildcat concentration camps that pop up or they're just the um, SAS going around and dragging people into into basements and, and holding them and oh, beating yeah. them up and sometimes murdering them so it is an an incremental it, it unfortunately going in one direction of, of intensity process that just keeps ramping up for sure and the Germans are even judgmental there's all kinds of interesting documentary evidence about you know the germans as they develop industrial mass murder really sort of start looking down on their own allies like the ustasha you know the croats or the romanians who were in terms of scale the second most eager killers after the nazis themselves they really just sort of really look down on them as being overly crude and old-fashioned in terms of how they're engaging in the killing they're not they don't think the killing is a problem they just think that there's obviously a more efficient, rational way to do this. You know, I don't think, unfortunately, and I don't want to buy into German stereotypes, but, you know, this was one of the most industrial societies in the world uh, that prided itself on its technocracy, its bureaucracy, and its, you know, mega corporate infrastructure. So I don't think it's a coincidence that one of the most scientific, modern countries in the world gave us, and I say this trying to hold back vomit, one of the most modern genocides that's ever occurred. Yeah. I guess let's turn back to your your art or your chapter. Yeah, for sure. And you know, what other ways that may surprise readers who are not familiar with this era of German history? What ways would there, the Nazi incorporation to the global system surprise readers? Sure. Um, just to throw out a few interesting things, uh, Nazism was clearly looking on not just on America, but also Imperial Japan. They were very fascinated by the Japanese, this sort of upstart success story. Uh, they were obsessed with South Africa and the British Empire. That was in many ways his sort of second model. So there's all these really interesting connections. There's a lot of great literature, particularly on Japan and Nazi Germany that's come out in the last three years that I think is very fascinating. Another thing that's interesting is there are a lot of ways in which Nazism in turn was a model for other people. So... Uh, there's this interesting feedback loop between, to a certain degree, Ataturk and Hitler. They didn't really have much of a relationship, but 
the Nazis were clearly fascinated by Ataturk's sort of national revolution and rebirth. And, you know, that was a nation that to a certain degree was born in what many would argue was a genocide. But also Ataturk was clearly looking at the Germans. You see this with, there's a whole literature on this on the various authoritarian regimes, uh, Suharto, <laughs> you know, people after 45 who looked at Nazism as a model, uh, particularly in places where the, cultural resonance of the Holocaust just really wasn't there. You know, often they didn't have much of a Jewish diaspora themselves. You know, their experience with the war had been Japanese occupation had been totally different. So Nazism in ways that are very interesting, I think became an example to other people, to other sort of authoritarian regimes elsewhere. So uh, I think that's fairly fascinating and is often underexplored. There's also all kinds of literature on, and I mentioned this earlier, fascism itself is a transnational phenomenon. So, uh, you know, just to name one, there's a book called Fascism Without Borders by, I believe it's Bauer Kemper and Rosalinsky Lieba, I think is how you say their names, that, you know, makes an argument about all the ways in which all these movements were feeding off each other and looking at each other. There's uh, another book, The Social Policies of the Third Reich and Their Global Appeal, that yeah. uh, I think that's by Cotton Patel that talks about social policy, sometimes not even in authoritarian regimes like in Scandinavia, you know, all the various ways in which different social states were examining one another and basing their policies on one another. Um, it's just incredible. Yeah, Stefan Ehrig is that book about Ataturk, Ataturk and the Nazi imagination. Uh, yeah, I definitely looked that one up. I have not read that one. That looks, uh, yeah, he's the same. He's the the scholar who justifying genocide uh, about the Germans and the Armenians. I think it's from yeah, Bismarck yeah. to Hitler. So he's done a ton on the sort of Turkish-German relationship. So um, another book one of the chapters fascism. in this book to move over talks about the all the interesting ways in which Nazism tries to articulate itself in Hawaii of all places. <laughs> this is because uh, the scholar uh, Rosenfeld works. You know, he, he's in Hawaii and, you know, sort of tried to turn lemons into lemonade. He's like, what can I research here? And he found out about this uh, Nazi consul who creates this whole notion of racism that somehow allows a space for Hawaiians. It's very interesting. Uh, and a reminder that, you know, Nazism wasn't just some sort of archetype that people accepted whole cloth. Uh, it was sort of a malleable thing that different people were trying to frame in different ways. Yeah. So that that chapter is incredibly fascinating. Well, that kind of reminds me of some of the stories of the the various colored uh, shirt movements in India. Yeah, for sure, indeed. Yeah, that's an, uh, that's what I actually started writing about already as an undergrad in early grad school was about the feedback between the RSS, you know, mm -hmm. the sort of Hindutva movement, and Golwalkar and his obsession with Hitler. Mm. So I would argue Hindutva, that's another case of sort of a global South movement. Oh, yeah. Very, very, very many more varies fascinated by Nazism and would say things about the Muslim problem in yes. the subcontinent being similar to the Jewish problem. Very similar language. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. So another book that came out last year that uh, about the, the transnational trajectory of fascism is by uh, Federico Finkelstein uh, from Fascism to Populism in History. And I mean, it, it even the opening uh, introduction of that book even talks about the author being in New York when Trump is inaugurated and just the, the, the vibe on the street and everything, you know, because you cannot argue 
some people might push back on whether Trump is a fascist or not, but saying that he's a populist is, I think, without question. And so just showing that link in, in the post-war transition of a lot of fascist sure. movements and thinking into populism. So. Yeah, I uh, we don't have to go too far down this rabbit hole because it's depressing, but I think in this current global authoritarian mo mo moment, I think we're learning that apparently fear of and knowledge of fascism has a half-life. So, and I don't know if this is just because post-war structures are crumbling or because the generation that actually remembers this is dying or, 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 I mean, many people much smarter than me have pondered this question. But yeah, if anything, I feel like the obsession with Nazism is really taking a very weird turn and... Uh, you know, it used to be just sort of people like Pat Buchanan, <laughs> who said, <laughs> yeah. just to remind you, said that the war is a mistake and we were on the wrong side. Neil Ferguson kind of implies the same thing a little bit. But, I, you know, I think, I mean, you pick your poll, but there is a growing number of Americans who question whether the Holocaust happened at all. I think I've seen some polls where it's something like a third. And, you know, you have to be careful about polling. I don't, sure. questions can be framed in a way that's problematic, but. You know, clearly something has happened that makes Nazism something that is, and I mean open Nazism, but Charlottesville, not just sort oh, yeah. of a general nebulous kind of populist fascist thing, like literal actual Nazism Richard is Spencer, now legitimate. And, yeah, on the political right again, yeah. and that's extremely alarming. And I would argue in light of what I said earlier, not surprising in some ways. I mean, why no. would this moment be any different? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, another thing that I think has it out is the ability that the right has pulled to frame the bad parts of Nazism as being socialist, so therefore equivalent to the left. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Uh, yeah, there's a weird sleight of hand there that they're both in some ways praising Nazi. It depends on the person, obviously, the yeah. argument. But then at the same time, anything they don't like is Nazi. Because, you know, Godwin's law is still sort of in effect <laughs> in terms of at some point it's, it's still kind of the ultimate epithet. But yeah. I don't think it's so ultimate anymore. Maybe it shouldn't be. I, I honestly feel it should be. But uh, yeah, it's we're we're in a we live in a weird moment right now. We do. We do. Well, I've had you on here for a little over an hour now. Um, I thank you for your time. Um, I could talk to you about this, and I have at various times talked about this all day. Um, but I'm sure you have many other responsibilities that you need to get to. So I, I just want to thank you for coming on and talking about this, and then would encourage everyone to seek out this chapter and read it and read the other stuff too, because it sounds like there's other very interesting scholarship in this, this volume. I look forward to it actually coming out where I can get my hands on it. Me too. Yeah. There's all kinds of great stuff in here. So yeah, I appreciate it. I'm going to go from this actually to homeschooling my five-year-old, which is not nearly as grim as this. I would hope a nice, I think, antidote in some ways. Uh, refocusing me on you know the present and this this moment right now so. yes but well, thanks for having me i'd be happy to come back obviously we have a million things we can talk about oh so. yeah i definitely do want to have you come back so I, I think you know and i might even i'm working on a project that is undisclosed at the moment with a scholar of genocide at Keene university michael carter so at some point i would like to have you come on and maybe maybe michael as well and we can all just um, talk about oh, that oh yeah subject I think that'll be fascinating. No, for sure. Whatever you need, man. All right. Appreciate it. Uh, give the family my love, and I will talk to you later. I'll do that. Thanks. Stay safe, everyone. And thank you for listening to Evil Looking History.